welcome to Silmarillion Sunday, part 18. I am Don Marshall 72, the obscure Lord of the Rings facts guy. We start today's Silmarillion Sunday with chapter 21 of Turin Turambar. Now, because of my own personal scheduling, this is likely going to be a two-part series. Because this chapter is roughly 27 pages long. That's a long stream. So, we will have part one here, and then next week will be part two. However, if you feel like jumping ahead, please feel free and go ahead, or you can read the other version of Chapter 21 of Turin Torumbar. It's called The Children of Horin. A little bit of background. The Children of Horin book is roughly 300 pages, and it is compiled and edited by Christopher Tolkien, Tolkien's son, taking all of his notes and drafts and versions of this particular chapter in the Silmarillion and turning it into a full story. It is incredible. It is, however, very sad. Now, a brief recap. When we last left off last week, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears had just happened. The fifth battle between Morgoth's forces and the elves, men, and dwarves. It is called the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad. It's a bit of a mouthful, I know. But it does uh, play a huge role in this next chapter. You'll remember, last week, there were a group of elves that hid and went back to Gondolin with Turgonda. There was that hidden city. A group of men um, basically stood and fought to the death to the last man um, to make sure that they got away secretly. And they did. They were successful. However, the last person alive, Torin Turambar, was captured and brought before Sauron. Or, excuse me, brought before Morgoth. It is here that we pick up on Silmarillion. Excuse me, Silmarillion Sunday. Chapter 21. Let's get started. Chapter 21 of Turin Turambar. Ryan, daughter of Belagund, was the wife of Huor, son of Galdor, and she was wedded to him two months before he went with Hurin, his brother, to the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad. When no tidings came to her of her lord, she fled into the wild. But she was aided by the grey elves of Mithrim, and her son, Tuor, was born, and when her son Tuor was born, they fostered him. Then Rhine departed from Hithlum, and going to the Haud en Dengin, she laid herself down upon it and died. Bit of background. That pile of things that I can't pronounce is the pile of bodies of the elves, men, and dwarves that the orcs made to basically show that they were victorious. Um... It's huge. Morwin, daughter of Beragund, was the wife of Horin, lord of Dorloman, and their son was Torin, who was born in the la in the year that Beren Erkamion came upon Luthien in the forest of Neldoreth. So it's a Beren and Luthien reference. A daughter they had that was called Lalaith, which is laughter and she was beloved by Torin, her brother. But when she was three years old, there came a pestilence to Hithlum, born on an evil wind out of Angband, and she died. Now after the Nirnaeth Arnoidiad, Morwen abode still in Dorloman, for Torin was but eight years old, and he was again, and she was again with child. Those days were evil, for the Easterlings that came into Hithlum despised the remnants of the people of Hador, and they, and they oppressed them. 
and took their lands and their goods and enslaved their children. But so great was the beauty and majesty of the Lady of Dorloman that the Easterlings were afraid, and they dare not lay hands upon her or her household, and they whispered among themselves, saying that she was perilous, and a witch skilled in magic in the League of the Elves. Yet she was now poor and without aid, save that she was succored secretly by the kinswoman of Horin named Aaron, whom Broda, an Easterling, had taken as his wife. And Morwin feared greatly that Turin would be taken from her and enslaved. Therefore it came into her heart to send him away in secret, and to beg King Thingol to harbor him, for Beren, son of Barahir, was her father's kinsman, and he had, more, had been moreover a friend of Horin, ere evil befell. Therefore in the autumn of the year of lamentation, the year of lamentation is like the year after the near Arnoidiad, where everyone is basically no longer here. Therefore, in the autumn of the year of lamentation, Morwin sent Torin, excuse me, sent Torin forth over the mountains with two aged servants, bidding them find entry, if they could, into the kingdom of Doriath. Thus was the fate of Torin woven, which is full, full told in that lay that is called Narn Ihirn Turin, the tale of the children of Hurin. Oh, oh. See what he did there. It's the book. And is the longest of all the lays that speak of those days. It is. It's about 300 pages. Here, that tale is told in brief, for it is woven with the fates of the Silmarils and the elves, and it is called the Tale of Grief, for it is sorrowful, and in it are revealed most evil works, the most evil works of Morgoth. In the first beginning of the year, Morwen gave birth to her child, the daughter of Hurin, and she named her Nienor, which is mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, not M-O-R-N. But Turin and his companions, passing through great peril, came at last to the borders of Doriath, and there they were found by Beleg Strongbow, chief of the March Wardens of King Thingol. So he's like... Haldir in Lothlorien. He's a giant scout. Not giant, like tall giant, but like he's the he's a big deal. And they were found by Beleg Strongbow, chief of the March Wardens of King Thingol, who led them to Menegroth. Then King Thingol received Torin and took him even to his own fostering in honor of Horin the Steadfast. So remember, Horin was the guy that is captured by Morgoth that was the last guy standing, helping make sure that Torgon and all the people of Gondolin could get away back safely. For Thingol's mood was changed toward the houses of the elf friends. Thereafter, <coughs> messengers went north to Hiflum, bidding Morwen leave Dorloman and return with them to Doriath. But she would not leave the house for which she had dwelt with Horin. And when the elves departed, she sent them with the dragon helm of Dorloman, greatest of the heirlooms of the house of Hador. Torin grew fair and strong in Doriath, and he was marked with sorrow. For nine years he dwelt in Thingol's halls, and during that time his grief grew less, for messengers went at times to Hithlum 
and returning they brought better tidings of Morwen and Neonor. But then came the day when the messengers did not return out of the north, and Thingol would send no more. Then Torin was filled with fear of his, for his mother and his sister. In the grimness of his heart he went before the king and asked for mail and sword, and he put on the dragon helm of Dor Loman and went out to battle on the marches of Doriath and became the companion in arms of Belek. And when three years had passed, Turin returned again to Menegroth. And he came from the wild and was unkempt, and his gear and garments were wayworn. Now one there was, uh, now one there was in Doriath of the people of the Namdor, high in the councils of the king. Seiros was his name, and he had long begrudged Torin the honor he received as Thingol's foster son, and seated opposite to him on the board, taunting. At the board he taunted him, saying, If the men of Hithlim are so wild and fell, of what sort are the women of the land? Do they run like deer clad only in short in what sort? Oh, excuse me. Do they, do they run like deer clad only in their hair? Then Torin, in great anger, took up a drinking vessel and cast it at Seiros, and he was grievously hurt. There's a little bit of a, um, there's a little bit of a parallel here, you'll notice, between um, the folks, uh, a guy by the name of Maglin, you'll remember, who's in Gondolin, and um, Seiros, who is in Doriath. Also, I think I said Gondolin before. I want to clarify. Um, Torin is in Doriath with Thingol, not Gondolin. If I said that, I apologize. On the next day, Seros waylaid Turin as he set out for Menegroth to return on the marches. But Turin overcame him, and set him to run naked as a hunted beast through the woods. Then Seros, fleeing in terror before him, fell into a chasm of a stream, and his body was broken on the great rock in the water. But others coming saw what had been done, and Mablong was with them, and he bade Turin return with him to Menegroth and abide the judgment of, of the king, seeking his pardon. But Turin, deeming himself now an outlaw and fearing to be held captive, refused Mablung's biddings and turned swiftly away, and passing through the girdle of Melian, he came to the woods west of Sirion. There he joined himself to a band of such houseless and desperate men as could be found in those evil days lurking in the wilds. So he joined a bunch of bandits, basically. And their hands were turned against all who came in their path, elves and men and orcs. If you think it's bad now, it only gets worse. And when all had befallen and the, and when all that had befallen was told and search and searched out before Thingol, the king pardoned Torin, holding him wronged. In that time Beleg Strongbow returned from the north marches and came to Menegroth, seeking him. And Thingol spoke to Beleg, saying, I grieve, for I took Horin's son for I took Horin's son as my son, and so he shall remain, unless Horin himself shall return out of the shadows to claim his own. I would not have any say that Torin was driven forth unjustly into the wild, and gladly would I welcome him back, for I loved him well. And Beleg answered, I will seek Torin until I find him, and I will bring him back to Menegroth if I can. For I love him also. I think there's a lot of, of camaraderie and brothership here. Then Beleg departed from Menegroth, and far across Beleriand he sought in vain for tidings of Torin through many perils, 
But Torin bowed along long among the outlaws and became their captain, and he named himself Nithen, the wronged. Very rarely, or excuse me, very warily they dwelt in the wooded lands south of Taglin. But when the year had passed since Torin fled from Doriath, Beleg came upon their lair by night. It chanced that at the time Torin was gone from the camp, and the outlaws seized Beleg and bounded him, and treated him cruelly, for they feared him as a spy of the king of Doriath. But Torin returning, and seeing what was done, was stricken with remorse for all their evil and lawless deeds, and he released Beleg, and they renewed their friendship. And Torin forswore henceforth, excuse me, and Torin forswore thenceforth war and plunder against all save the servants of Angband. So it's getting a little better. Then Beleg told Torin of King Thingol's pardon, and he sought to persuade him by all means that he might to return with him to Doriath, saying that there was great need of strength and valor on the north marches of the realm. Of late, the orcs have found their way down out of Tower Nufuin, he said. You don't have to know where that is, it's just a place. And they made a road through the pass of Anak, I do not remember it, said Turin. Never did we go so far across the border, said Beleg. But you have seen the peaks of the Chrysagrim far off. Chrysagrim is a mountain range. And to the east, and to the east, the dark walls of the Gorgoroth, Anak lies between. Above the high springs of Mindeb. Again, you don't have to remember any of this. This is just Tolkien going off about trees and nature. Above the high springs of Mindeb, a hard and dangerous road, yet many come by it now, and Dinbar, which used to be which used to be in peace, was falling under the black hand, and the men of Brethiel are troubled. We are needed there. But in the pride of his heart, Torin refused the pardon of the king, and the words of Beleg were of no avail to change his mood. And he, for his part, urged Beleg to remain with him in the la lands west of the Syrian. But then, but that, Beleg would not do. And he said, Hard you are, Torin, and stubborn, and the turn is mine. If you wish indeed to have the strongbow beside you, look for me in Dimbar, for thither I shall return. Thither means there, in case anybody wasn't aware. On the next day, Beleg set out, and Torin went with him, a bow shot from the camp. But he said nothing. Is it farewell then? Oh, excuse me. Is it farewell then, son of Horin? said Beleg. Then Torin looked out westward, and he saw far off in the great heights of Amon Rud, and the unwitting of what lay before him, and unwitting of what lay before him, he answered, You have said, Seek me in Dimbar. But I say, Seek for me on Amon Rud, else this is our last farewell. Then they parted in friendship, yet in sadness. Now Beleg returned to the Thousand Caves, and coming before Thingol and Melian, told, him, told them of all that had befallen, save only of his evil handling by Torin's companions. So he didn't tell it. Save means accept in, in this case. Then Thingol sighed, and he said, What more would Torin have me do? Give me leave, lord, said Beleg, and I will guard him and guide him as I may. Then no man shall say that the elven words are lightly spoken. Nor would I wish to see so great a good run to nothing in the wild. 
Then Thingol gave Beleg leave to do as he would, and he said, Beleg, Kuthalion, many, for many deeds you have earned my thanks, but not the least is the finding of my foster son. At this parting, ask for any gift, and I will not deny it to you. I ask then for a sword of worth, said Beleg, for the orcs come now too thick and close for bow only, and such blade as I have is no match for their armor. Choose from all that I have, said Thingol, save only Aranruth, my own. Then Beleg chose Anglakel, and that was a sword of great worth, and it was so named because it was made of iron that fell from heaven as a blazing star. It's made out of a meteorite. It's so cool. And it would cleave all earth iron, all earth-dwelled iron. One other sword only in Middle-earth was like to it. That sword does not enter into this tale, though it was made by the same ore, by the same smith. And that smith was Aeol, the dark elf, who took, who took Aradel, Torgon's sister, to wife. Aeol, the dark elf, was the one that married Thingol's sister. We talked about him, I think it was chapter... 13? Of Maeglin? Is it of Maeglin? Hang on, let me find it. Yes, of Maeglin, chapter 16. For those of you that have watched Avatar The Last Airbender, Space Sword is very much a parallel between this. <laughs> Alright. So this is about Aeol. He gave Anglakel to Thingol as fee, which he begrudged, for leave to dwell in non Elmoth, but his mate, Anguriel, he kept, until it was stolen for, from him by Maeglin, his son. But as Thingol turned the hilt of Anglakel towards Beleg, Melian looked at the blade, Melian is Thingol's wife, who is also Amaya, one of the demigods, and said, There is malice in this sword. The dark heart of the smith still dwells in it. It will not love the hand it serves. Neither will it abide with you long. Nevertheless, I will wield it while I may. Another gift I will give to you, Kuthalion, said Melian. That shall be your help in the wild, and the help also of those whom you choose. And she gave to him store of Lembas, the waybread of the elves, wrapped in leaves of silver. See? It's a movie reference. And a book reference, I guess. <laughs> And the threads that are bound, uh, that bound it were sealed in knots with the seal of the queen, a wafer of white wax shaped as a single flower of Telperion. Telperion, you'll remember, is the ancient tree from the Undying Lands. It did nothing. Uh, in nothing did Melian show greater favor to Turin than in this gift alone, for the Eldar had never before allowed men to use the waybread, and seldom did so again. Hmm. Lembus, eating Lembus is a great honor. Then Beleg departed with these gifts from Menegroth and went back to the North Marches. There he had his lodges and many friends. Then in Dimbar the orcs were driven back and Anglikel rejoiced to be unsheathed. But when the winter came and the war was stilled, suddenly his companions missed Beleg and he returned to them no more. Uh-oh. I will pause there for a moment and take any questions folks have.
Temporal Godhead asks, in a world where Varda made the stars, where do meteorites come from? Did you make those too? You know what? That's a good question. So, um, I feel like other planets aren't really talked about at all in Tolkien's universe, um, but there are stars. Uh, whether or not Tolkien wanted to delve into astronomy is unclear, but I get the sense that this was some sort of space rock meteor meteorite um comet I, I am not an astronomer by any means i don't know terribly much about uh where like what the correct terminology is i apologize but um a rock from space is sort of like the bare minimum it can be thought though that varda maybe made this when she created the stars or it was the work of all of the ainur and the valar just sort of creating the physical world itself Hope that answers your question. Padding says, in your copy, it says only the queen can give Limbus. Does that change later? Hang on, let me check. I'm on page 202 of my copy, by the way. Um, here we go. Seal of the queen, wax wafer. According to the... Oh. <laughs> oh, I totally skipped a line. I am so sorry. You're absolutely right. Um, here we go. A wafer of white wax shaped as a single flower of Telperion. For according to the customs of the Eldalay, the keeping and giving of Lembos belonged to the queen alone. In nothing did Melian show greater favor to Torin than in that gift. Yeah, I totally missed that. I'm so sorry. That is my fault. Now when Beleg departed from the outlaws and returned into Doriath, Torin led them away westward out of Sirion's Vale. For they grew we weary of their life without rest, ever watchful and in fear of pursuit, and they sought for a safer lair. In their chance at the time of evening that they came upon three dwarves who fled before them, but one that lagged behind was seized and thrown down, and a man of the company took his bow and let fly an arrow to the others as they vanished in the dusk. Now the dwarves, now the dwarf that they had taken was named Mim, M-I-M, -M, with an accent over the I. You should remember Nim. You should remember Mim. You should remember Mim. He's important. Now the dwarf they had taken was named Mim, and he pleaded for his life before Torin, and offered as ransom to lead them to his hidden halls, which none might find without his aid. There Torin, then Torin pitied Mim, and spared him, and he said, Where is your house? Then Mim answered, High above the lands lies the house of Mim. Upon the great hall, Amon-Ru is the hill called now, since the elves changed all the names. And they do. The elves change the name all the time. Then Turin was silent, and he looked upon the dwarf, and at the last said, You shall bring us to that place. On that next day they set out thither, following Mim to Amon-Ru. Now that hill stood upon the edge of the moorlands that rose between the vales of Sirion and Nogrod, two rivers, and high above the stony heath it reared its crown, but its steep gray, but its steep gray head was bare, save for the red Saragon that mantled the stone. And as the men of Torin's excuse me, band drew near, the sun, westering, broke through the clouds and fell upon the crown, and the Saragon was all in flower. Then one among them said, there is blood on the hilltop. But Mim led them by secret paths up the steep slopes of Amonru, and at the mouth of the cave 
he bowed to Torin, saying, Enter into Bar en Dunwed, the house of ransom, for so it shall be called. And now there came another dwarf bearing, bearing light to greet him, and they spoke together and passed swiftly into the darkness of the cave. But Torin followed after, and came at length to the chamber far within, lit by dim lamps hanging upon chains. There he found Mim kneeling as a stone couch, kneeling at a stone couch beside the wall, and he tore his beard and wailed, crying one name unceasingly, and in the couch there lay a third. But Turin, entering, stood beside Mim, and offered him aid. Then Mim looked upon him and said, You can give no aid, for this is Kim, my son, and he is dead, pierced by an arrow. He died at sunset. Ibun, my son, has told me. Then pity rose in Turin's heart, and he said to Mim, Alas, I would recall that shaft if I could. Now, Bar and Danwe, this house shall be called in truth. And if ever I come to any wealth, I will pay you in ransom of gold for your son in token of sorrow, though it gladden your heart no more. Then Mim rose and looked long at Torin. I hear you, he said. You speak like a dwarf lord of old, and at that I marvel. Now my heart is cooled, though it is not glad, and in this house you may dwell if you will, for I will pay my ransom. So began the abiding of Torin in the hidden house of Mim upon Amonru, and he walked in the greensward before the mouth of the cave and looked out east and west and north. Northward he looked and descried the forest of Brethiel, climbing green about Amon Aubel in the mist. And thither his eye were drawn ever again, and he knew not why. For his heart was set rather to the northwest, where league upon league away from the skirts of the sky it seemed to him that he could glimpse the mountains of shadow, the walls of his home. But at evening Turin looked around west into the sunset. As the sun rode down red into the haze above the distant coast, and the vale of Nogrod lay deep in the shadows between. In that time that followed, excuse me, in that time that followed, Torin spoke much with Mim, and sitting with him alone, he listened to his lore and tales of his life. For Mim came of dwarves that were banished in ancient days from the great dwarf cities of the east, and long before the return to Menegroth, they wandered westward into Beleriand, and they became diminished in stature and in smithcraft, and they took to lives of stealth, walking with bowed shoulders and furtive steps. But the dwarves of Nogrod and Belagost came west over the mountains. The elves of Beleriand knew not what these others were, and they hunted them and slew them. But afterwards they let them alone, and they were called Nogith Nibin, the petty dwarves in the Sindarin tongue. They loved none but themselves, and if they feared and hated the orcs, they hated the Eldar no less, and the exiles most of all. For the Noldor, they said, had stolen their lands and their home. Long ere King Finrod Felagond came over the sea, the caves of Nargothrond were discovered by them, and by them its delvings had begun, and beneath the crown of Amonru, the bald hill, the slow hand of the petty dwarves had bored and deepened the caves through the long years that they dwelt that they dwelt there, untroubled by the gray elves of the woods. 
but now at last they had dwindled and died out of Middle-earth, all save Mim and his two sons. And Mim was old even in the reckoning of dwarves, old and forgotten. And in his halls the smithies were idle, and the axes rusted, and their name was remembered only in ancient days and tales of Doriath and Nargothrond. But when the year drew to midsummer, excuse me, midwinter, snow came down from the north, heavier than that, than they had known in the river. In, in the oh god, sorry, let me try that again. But when the year drew to midwinter, snow came down from the north, heavier than they had known it in the river vales, and the Amonru was covered deep. And they said that the winters worsened in Valerian as the power of Angband grew. Angband is Morgoth's fortress. Then only the hardiest dared stir abroad, and some fell sick, and all were pinched with hunger. But in the dim dusk of the winter's day there appeared suddenly along, along them a man, it seemed, of great bulk and girth, cloaked and hooded in white. And he walked up to a fire without a word. And when men sprang up in fear, he laughed and threw back his hood, and beneath his wide cloak he bore a great pack, and in the light of the fire, Torin looked again on the face of Beleg, Kuathilon. Kuthalion, sorry, I can't pronounce that name, just full disclosure, my elvish is terrible. Thus Beleg returned once more to Torin, and their meeting was glad, and with him he brought out of Dimbar the dragon helm of Dorlomen, thinking that it might lift Torgon, Torin's thought again above his life in the wilderness as the leader of petty companies. But still, Torin would not return to Doriath, and Beleg, yielding to his love against his wisdom, remained with him and did not depart. And in that time he labored much for the good of Torin's company. Those that were hurt or sick he tended and gave to them the lembas of Melian, and they were quickly healed. For through the gray elves, Less in, for though the Grey Elves were less in skill and knowledge than the exiles of Valinor, in the ways of life in Middle-earth they had wisdom beyond the reach of men. And because Beleg was strong and enduring, far-sighted in mind as in eye, he came to be held in great honor among the outlaws. But the hatred of Mim for the Elves that had come to Bar and Danwe grew even greater. And he sat with Ibun his son in the deepest shadows of his house, speaking to no one. But Torin paid now little heed to the dwarf, and when winter passed and spring came, they had sterner work to do. Who knows now the counsel of Morgoth? Who can measure the reach of his thought? Who had been Melkor, mighty among the Ainur of the great song, and sat now a dark lord upon a dark throne in the north, weighing in his malice all the tidings that came to him, and perceiving more of the deeds and purpose of his enemies, than even the wisest of them feared, save only Melian the queen. To her often the thought of Morgoth reached out, and they were foiled. And now again the might of Angband was moved, and as the long fingers of the groping hand the forerunners of his armies probed his way into Beleriand. So this is a very fancy way of saying that Morgoth is, metaphorically speaking, reaching out with his armies, poking and prodding different places to see who's going to fight where, where are the reinforcements, where are the, the women and children, where are the camps, where are the armories. Because there's a lot, um, 
Sorry, I got distracted by a comment on TikTok that said, I may get more viewers if I read topless. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate I appreciate it. Thanks for the advice. I'm not taking my shirt off. <laughs> All right. Um, if anybody has any uh, questions, feel free to um, ask them in the chat below. I will just do a quick plug on TikTok. Uh, no, I am not taking my shirt off, chat. Uh, we are not going into the uh, hot tub and pool section of Twitch. I will not go there. Not today. And now again, the might of Angband was moved. As the long fingers of groping hands, the forerunners of his armies probed their way into Beleriand. Through Anak they came, and Dimbar was taken, and all the north marches of Doriath. Down the ancient roads they came that led through the long defile of Sirion, past the isle where, excuse me, Minas Tirith of Finrod, where Minas Tirith of Finrod had stood. Again, like I said before, the other Minas Tirith. There have been two. And on through the eaves of the Brethiel to the crossing of Taglin. Thence the road went into the guarded plain. But the orcs did not go far upon it as yet, for, the dwe for there dwelt now in the wild terror that was hidden, and upon the red hill were watchful eyes for which they had not been warned. For Turin put on again the helm of Hador, and far and wide in Beleriand the whispers went under wood and over stream and through the passes of the hills, saying that the helm and bow had fallen in Dimbar. Oh, excuse me, saying that the helm and bow that had fallen in Dimbar had arisen again beyond hope. Then many who went leaderless, dispossessed but undaunted, took heart again, and came to seek the two captains. I'm going to butcher this name. Dor Kurthal, the land of bow and helm, was in that time named all the region between Taglin and the western marches of Doriath. And Turin named himself anew, Gorthal, the dread helm, and in his heart, and his heart was high again. In Menegroth, and in the deep halls of Nargothrond, and even in the hidden realm of Gondolin, the fame of the deeds of the two captains was heard. And in Angband, also, they were known. Then Morgoth laughed, for now, by the dragon helm, was Hurin's son revealed to him again, and ere long, Amonrud was ringed with spies. I will stop there for now. Welcome to Silmarillion Sunday Part 19. This is also Part 2 of Chapter 21 of Turin Turumbar. We're not going to do a recap just because this is in the middle of something and last week's was so short. So if you haven't watched part 18, please go do so. We will jump right into it on chapter 21 of the Silmarillion. I am currently on page 206. In the waning of the years of Mim the dwarf and Ibun his son went out from the Bar and Danwe to gather roots in the wild for their winter store. But they were taken captive by orcs. Then, for a second time, Mim promised to guide his enemies by the secret paths of his home on Amonru. But yet he sought to delay the fulfillment of his promise, and demanded that Gorthal should not be slain. Then the orc captain laughed and said to Mim, Assuredly, Torin, son of Horin, shall not be slain. 
Thus was Bar en Danwe betrayed, for the orcs came upon it by night at unawares, guided by Mim. There many of Torin's company were slain as they slept, but some, fleeing by the inner stairs, came out upon the hilltop, and there they fought until they fell. And their blood flowed out upon the Saragon that mantle the stone. But a net was cast over Torin as he fought, and he was enmeshed in it, and overcome, and led away. And at length, when all was silent again, Mim crept out of the shadow of his house, and as the sun rose over the mist of the Sirion, he stood beside the dead men on the hilltop. But he perceived that not all those that lay there were dead, for by one, for, for by one his gaze was returned, and he looked in the eyes of Beleg the elf. You'll remember Beleg was Torin's friend when Torin was in Doriath, um, and they are, um, they were good friends. They separated for a while, Torin and Beleg, um, but he decided to stay with Torin. Uh, but he's still alive, and he's very angry. Then, with a hatred long stored, Min stepped up to Beleg and drew forth the sword Anglakel that lay beneath the body of one that had fallen beside him. But Beleg, stumbling up, seized back the sword and thrust it at the dwarf, and Mim fled in terror, wailing from the hilltop. And Beleg cried after him, The vengeance of the house of Hador will find you yet! Now Beleg was sorely wounded, but he was mighty among the elves of Middle-earth, and he was, moreover, a master of healing. Therefore he did not die, and slowly his strength returned and he sought in vain among the dead for Torin to bury him, but he found him not, and then he knew that Hurin's son was yet alive and taken to Angband. With little hope, Beleg departed from Amonru and set out northward towards the crossing of Teglin. Teglin? I think it's Teglin. Following up, following in the tracks of the orcs, and he crossed over the Brekiak and journeyed through Dimbar towards the pass of Anak, and now he was not far behind them, and he went without sleep, without sleeping, whereas they had tarried on the road, hunting in the lands and fearing no pursuit as they came northward, and not even in the dreadful woods of Tower Nufuin did he swerve from the trail, for the skill of Beleg was greater than any that have been in Middle-earth. Better than Aragorn. But as he passed by night through the evil land, he came upon one lying asleep at the foot of the great dead tree. And Beleg, staying his steps beside the sleeper, saw that it was an elf. Then he spoke to him and gave him Lembas, and asked him what fate had brought him to this terrible place. And he named himself Gwyndor, son of Gwilin. Grieving, Beleg looked upon him, for Gwyndor was now but a bent and fearful shadow of his former shape and mood. When, in the Nirneath Arnoidiad, that lord of Nargothrond rode with rash courage to the very doors of Angband, and there was taken. For few of the Noldor whom Morgoth captured were put to death because of their skill in forging and in mining of metals and gems. And Gwyndor was not slain, but put in labor in the mines of the north. By secret times... Oh, excuse me. By secret tunnels... Known only to themselves, the mining elves might sometimes escape, and thus it came to pass that Beleg found him, spent and bewildered in the mazes of Tower Nufuin. 
and Gwyndor told him that as he lay and lurked among the trees, he saw a great canopy of orcs passing northward, and wolves went with them, and among them was a man whose hands were chained, and they drove him onward with a whip. Very tall he was, said Gwyndor, as tall as are the men of the misty hills of Hithlum. Then Beleg told him of his own errand in Tower Nufuin, and Gwyndor sought to dissuade him from his quest, saying that he would but join Torin in the anguish that awaited him. But Beleg would not abandon Torin, and despairing himself, he oh excuse me, and despairing himself, he aroused hope again in Gwyndor's heart, and together they went on, following the orcs until they came out of the forest on the high slopes that ran down the barren dunes of Anfauglith. Again, these are not places you need to remember. Then, within sight of the peaks of Thangorodrim, the orcs made their encampment in the bare dell as a light of day was failing, and setting wolf sentinels all about, they fell to carousing. A great storm rode up out of the west, and lightning glittered in the shadowy mountains far away, as Beleg and Gwyndor crept into the dell. When all in the camp were sleeping, Beleg took his bow, and in the darkness shot the wolf sentinels, one by one, and silently. Then, in great peril, they entered in, and found Turin fettered, and found Turin fettered hand and foot, and tied to a withered tree, and all about him knives that had been cast at him were embedded in the trunk, and he was senseless in the sleep of great weariness. But Beleg and Gwyndor cut the bonds that held him, and lifting him they carried him out of the dell, yet they could hear him, yet they could bear him no further than to a thicket of thorn trees a little way above. There they laid him down, and now the storm drew very near, and Beleg drew his sword Anglicel, and with it he cut the fetters of that bound Tor. But fate was that day more strong, for the blade slipped as he cut the shackles, and Torin's foot was pricked. Then he was aroused into a sudden wakefulness of fear and rage, and seeing one bending over him with a naked blade, he leapt up with a great cry, believing that the orcs were again come to torment him, and grappling him in the darkness, he seized Anglicel and slew Beleg, thinking him a foe. As he stood, finding himself free, and ready to sell his life dearly against his imagined foes, there came a great flash of lightning above him. And in its light, he looked down on Beleg's face. Then Turin stood stone still and silent, staring at that dreadful death, knowing what he had done. And so terrible was his face, lit by the lightning that flickered all about them, that Gwyndor cowered down upon the ground and dared not raise his eyes. But now in the dell beneath the orcs were aroused, and all the camp was in a tumult, for they feared the thunder that came out of the west, believing it was sent against them by the enemies beyond the sea. Then the wind arose, and great rains fell, and torrents swept down from the heights of Tower Nufuin. And though Gwyndor cried out to Torin, warning him of their utmost peril, he made no answer, but sat unmoving and unweeping in the tempest beside the body of Beleg Cuthalion. When morning came, the storm passed. When morning came, the storm was passed eastward over Lothlan, and the sun of autumn rose hot and bright. But believing his flight be washed, and the oh, excuse me, but believing that Torin would have fled far away from that place, and all trace of his flight might be washed away, 
the orcs departed in haste without longer search. And far off, Gwyndor saw them marching away over the streaming sands of Anfauglith. Thus it came to pass that they returned to Morgoth empty-handed, and left behind them the son of Hordin, who sat crazed and unwitting on the slopes of Tower Nufuin, bearing a burden heavier than their bonds. Then Gwyndor roused Turin to aid him in the burial of Beleg. And he rose as one that walked in sleep, and together they laid Beleg in a shallow grave, and placed beside him Belthronding, his great bow, that was made of a black yew wood. But the dread sword Anglicel Gwyndor took, saying that it were better that it should take vengeance on the servants of Morgoth than lie useless in the earth. And he took also the Lembos of Melian to strengthen them in the wild. Thus ended Beleg Strongbow, truest of friends, greatest in skill of all that harbored in the woods of Beleriand in the Elder Days, at the hand of him whom he loved most, and that grief was graven on the face of Torin, and never faded. But courage and strength were renewed in the elf of Nargothrond, and departing from Tower Nufuin he led Torin away. Never once, as they wandered together on long or grievous path, did Torin speak, and he walked as one without wish or purpose, while the year waned and winter drew on the northern lands. But Gwyndor was ever beside him to guard him and guide him, Thus they passed westward over Sirion, and came at length to Ethel Irvin, the spring whence Narog rose beneath the mountains of shadow. There Gwyndor spoke to Torin, saying, Awake, Torin, son of Horin Thalion. On Irvin's lake is endless laughter. She is fed from crystal fountains unfailing and guarded from defilement by Ulmo, lord of waters. Ulmo is one of the Valar. Who wrought, her beauty, who wrought her beauty in ancient days. Then Turin knelt and drank from the water, and suddenly he cast himself down, and his tears were unloosened at last, and he was healed of his madness. There he made a song for Beleg, and named it Lair Kubeleg, the song of the great bow, singing it aloud, heedless of peril. And Gwyndor gave the sword Anglicel into his hands, and Turin knew that it was very heavy and strong, and had great power, but its blade was black and dull, and its edges blunt. Then Gwyndor said, This is a strange blade, and unlike any that I have seen in Middle-earth, it mourns for Beleg even as you do, but be comforted. For I return to Nargothrond of the house of Finarfin, and you shall come with me, and be healed and renewed. Who are you? said Torin, A wandering elf, a thrall escaped whom Beleg met and comforted, said Gwyndor. Yet once I was Gwyndor, son of Gwilin, a lord of Nargothrond, until I went to the Nirneath Arnoidiad, and was enslaved in Angband. Then have you seen Horin, son of Galdor, of the warrior Dor Loman? said Torin. I have not seen him, said Gwyndor, but rumor of him runs through Angband, that he still defies Morgoth, and Morgoth has laid a curse upon him and all his kin. That I do believe, said Torin. And now they arose, and departing from Ethiel Irvin, they journeyed southward along the banks of Nogrod, until they were taken by scouts of the elves, 
and brought as prisoners to the hidden stronghold. Thus did Turin come to Nargothrond. I will pause there for a moment. We still have quite a ways to go, so this will probably be a longer stream. We've still got about 12 more pages to go. Yeah, that is the tragedy of Turin Turambar. When I when I mentioned the whole Greek tragedy thing, that that is really where it comes from. The whole um, the idea that um, by mistakes and tricks of the weather and lighting and torment, all of that uh, really comes through. If anyone has questions, feel free to leave them in the chat below. Uh, Mona, thank you for the sub. I appreciate it. Um, at first, his own people did not know Gwyndor, who went out young and strong and returned now seeming as one of the aged among mortal men because of his torment and his labors. But Findulias, daughter of Orodreth the king, knew him and welcomed him, for she had loved him before the Nirnaeth. And also greatly did Gwyndor love her beauty, that he named her Th oh, hmm. Thelivrin, which is the gleam of the sun on the pools of Ivrin. For Gwyndor's sake, Torin was admitted with him into Nogrod, and he dwelt there in honor. But when Gwyndor would tell his name, Turin checked him by saying, I am Egarwen, son of Umarth, which is the blood-stained son of the ill-fated, a hunter in the woods, and the elves questioned, and the elves of Nargothrond questioned him no more. In that time that followed, Turin grew high in favor with Orodreth, and well-nigh all hearts were turned to him in Nargothrond, for he was young, and only now reached his full manhood. And he was in truth the son of Morwen Elendwen, who, and, excuse me, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, Elendwen, to look upon, dark hair and pale skin with gray eyes, and his face more beautiful than any among mortal men in the elder days. I want to just make a note right now. T Tolkien has this habit of constantly saying that this person is the most beautiful or the strongest or the smartest or the most cunning and then completely negates it a couple chapters later it's just what he does i don't know why but it happens a lot right feanor is the most beautiful but then galadriel is the most beautiful and then beren is the most you know strongest but then horin is the strong it's it's a whole thing with tolkien right it's not exactly I'm gonna use I'm gonna use a 21st century uh, uh, Gen Gen Z thing. I think that's Cap. Poggers. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. Sorry, YouTube folks. This is this is just Twitch chat uh, coming through into my everyday life. Let's continue. Hmm. His speech and bearing were that of the ancient kingdom of Doriath, and even among the elves he might be taken for one of the great houses of the Noldor. Therefore many called him Adanahel, the Elfman. The sword Anglakel was forged anew for him by cunning smiths of Nargothrond, and though ever black its edges shone with pale fire. Uh. And he named it Gorthang, Iron of Death. So great was his prowess and skill in warfare in the confines of the guarded plains that he himself became known as Mormegil, the Black Sword, 
and the elves said, The Mormegil cannot be slain save by mischance or an evil arrow from afar. Therefore they gave him dwarf mail to guard him, and in a grim mood he also found he found also in the armories a dwarf mask all gilded, and he put it on before battle, and enemies fled before his face. And it then the heart of Findulias was turned from Gwyndor, and against her will, her love was given to Torin. But Torin did not perceive what had befallen, and being torn in heart, Findulias became sorrowful, and she grew wan and silent. But Gwyndor sat in dark thought, and on a time he spoke to Findulias, saying, Daughter of the house of Finarfin, let no grief lie between us, for though Morgoth has laid my life in ruin, you still I love. Go whither love leads you, yet beware, it is not fitting that the elder, the elder children of Iluvatar should wed with the younger, nor is it wise, for they are brief and soon to pass, to leave us in widowhood while the world lasts. Neither will fate suffer it, unless it be once or twice only, in some high case of doom that we do not perceive. But this man is not barren. A doom indeed lies upon him, as as seeing eyes may well read on him, but a dark doom. Enter not into him, into it, but if you will, your love shall betray you to bitterness and death. For hearken to me, though he be indeed Agwaren, son of Umarth, his right name is Turin, son of Hurin, whom Morgoth holds in Angband, and whose kin he has cursed. Doubt not the power of Morgoth Bauglir. Is it not written in me? Then Fundulias sat long in thought, but at last she said only, Turin, son of Hurin, loves me not, nor will. Now when Turin learned from Fundulias of what had passed, he was wrathful, and he said to Gwyndor, In love I hold you for rescue and safekeeping, but now you have done ill to me, friend, to betray my right name and call my doom upon me, for which I would lie hid. But Gwyndor answered, The doom lies in yourself, not in your name. When it became known to Oradreth that the Mormagil was in truth the son of Horin, Thalion, he gave him great honor, and, and Turin became mighty among the people of Nargothrond. So it actually has the opposite effect. He didn't want all of the attention, but he got it. But he had no liking for their manner of warfare of ambush and stealth and secret arrows, and he yearned for brave strokes and battle in the open, and his counsel weighed on the, with the king ever the longer the more. Excuse me. And his counsel weighed with the king ever the longer the more. Tolkien, just... Ugh, awkward sentence. In those days the elves of Nargothrond forsook their secrecy and went openly into battle, and great stores of weapons were made. And by the counsel of Turin, the Noldor built a mighty bridge over Narog, from the doors of Felagund, excuse me, from the doors of Felagund for the swifter passage of their arms. Then the servants of Angband were driven out of the land between the Narog and Sirion eastward, and westward to the Nenning and the desolate Phalas. And, and though Gwyndor spoke ever against Turin in the counsel of the king, holding it an ill policy, he fell into dishonor and none heeded him, for his strength was small, and he was no longer forward in arms. Thus Nargothrond was revealed to the wrath and hatred of Morgoth, but still at Turin's prayer his true name was not spoken, 
and though the fame of his deeds came to Doriath to the ears of Thingol, rumor spoke only of the black sword of Nargothrond. In that time of respite and hope, because, like, the elves are kind of winning now, they're doing a really good job, until, <clears throat> in that time of respite and hope, when, because of the deeds of Mormegil, Mor I have to figure out how to pronounce this, Mormegil, yeah, Mormegil, the power of Morgoth was stemmed west of Sirion. Morwen fled at last from Dor Lomen with Neonor, her daughter, and adventured the long journey to Thingol's halls. Remember, Morwen is, um, Torin's mom, but she gave him up for basically adoption to be fostered by the elves. But she also had a daughter, um, and Torin, uh, Torin is not aware that he has a sister, as far as I know. There a new grief awaited her, for she found Torin gone, and to Doriath there had come no tidings since the Dragonhelm had vanished from the lands west of the Sirion. But Morwen remained in Doriath with Neonor as guests of Thingol and Melian, and were treated with honor. Now it came to pass that when four hundred and ninety-five years had passed since the rising of the moon in the spring of the year, there came to Nargothrond two elves, named Gelmir and Arminas. They were of Angarod's people, and since the Dagor Bragolak, which is the fourth battle, not the fifth one that just happened in Irnath Arnoidiad, this is the fourth one, and, but since the Dagor Bragolak, they dwelt in the south with Círdan the shipwright, for their j far journeys had brought tidings of a great mustering of orcs and evil creatures under the eaves of the Ered Wethrin in the pass of Sirion, and they, were, and they told that Ulmo had come to Círdan, giving warning that great peril drew nigh to Nargothrond. Hear the words of the lords of water, they said to the king. Thus he spoke to Círdan the shipwright, the evil of the north has defiled the spring of Sirion, and my power withdraws from the fingers of that flowing water. But the worst thing is yet to come forth. Say therefore to the lords of Nargothrond, shut the doors of the fortress and go not abroad. Cast the stones of your pride into the loud rivers, that the creeping evil may not find the gates. Brief aside, so the folks that um, are in... Um, Middle-earth right now don't have a lot of help from the Valar, the, the lesser gods in Tolkien's universe, or the, I guess I should call them demigods. No, lesser gods and then the Maya are demigods. Regardless, the lesser gods in Tolkien's universe aren't helping. The exception is Ulmo. Ulmo is in all of the waters, both in the Undying Lands and in Middle-earth. Um, and he's basically the only one helping the elves in their fight against Morgoth. So when Ulmo comes forward... It's about to go down. And when we hear from Ulmo, it's usually a problem. I had said before, and I haven't said it in ages because we haven't heard from him, there is a Valar, one of the lesser gods named Mandos, and when Mandos speaks, bad things happen. I would like to um, add a second version of that, that when Ulmo gives you a warning, it's about to go down. You don't ever want a warning from, from Ulmo. He sees and feels everything. Yeah, Telvin, absolutely right. It gets worse. <laughs> absolutely does. All right, I will continue. Um, here we go. Here's the lords of the... All right, here we go. Orodreth was troubled by the dark words of the messengers. But Torin, 
would not would by no means hearken to these counsels. And lest of all and least of all would he suffer the great bridge to be cast down, for he was become proud and stern, and would order all things as he wished. Hang on, did I skip a page? Oh no, I didn't I thought I skipped a page, sorry. Or was troubled. Yeah, okay. Soon afterwards, Hondir, H-A-N-D-I-R, Hondir, Lord of Brethiel, was slain, for the orcs invaded his lands, and Hondir gave them battle, but the men of Brethiel were worsted, and driven back into the woods. And in the autumn of that and in the autumn of that year of the year, biding his hour, Morgoth loosed upon the people of Nagrod a great host that he had prepared, and Glaurung, the Orloki, Path Urlokai. Dragon. You can just say dragon, Tolkien. Okay, hang on. It's U-R-U-L-O-K-I with an accent over the O. So I think it's Urlokai. I could be wrong about that, though. I'm not sure. Regardless. Glaurung passed over Anfauglith and came thence into the north vales of Sirion. And there did great evil. Under the shadow of Eredwethrin he defiled the Ethiel Irvin. And thence he passed into the realm of Nargothrond and burned the Taleth... Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Chill, chill. River. Sorry, y'all. Then the warriors of Nargothrond went forth, and tall and terrible on that day looked Torin. And the heart of the host was upheld, and he rode on the right hand of Orodreth. But far greater was the host of Morgoth than any scout had told, and none but Turin, defended by his dwarf mouth, could withstand the approach of Glaurung. And the, el and the elves were driven back, and pressed by the orcs, into the field of Tumlad, tu Tumhalad, between Ginglith and Narog. Again, you don't have to remember any of these places. It's just... it's just... places. They don't have any real importance. And I'll tell you if they do. But Tor- uh, oh, hang on, totally lost my place again. But Turin- oh, um, and- oh. And on that day, all of the pride and host of Nargothrond withered away, and Orodreth was slain in the forefront of battle, and Gwyndor, son of Gwilin, was wounded to the death. But Turin came to his aid, and all fled before him, and he bore Gwyndor out of the rout, and escaping to the woods, he laid him on the grass. Then Gwyndor said to Turin, let bearing pay for bearing, but ill-fated was mine and vain is thine, for my body is marred beyond healing, and I must leave Middle-earth. And though I love thee, son of Horin, yet I rue the day that I took thee from the orcs. But for thy prowess and thy pride, still I should have love and life, a Nargothrond should yet stand for a while. But if thou love me, leave me. Haste thee to Nargothrond and save Findulias. And this last I say to thee, she alone stands between thee and thy doom. If thou fail her, it shall not fail to find thee. Farewell. Then Turin sped back to Nargothrond, mustering much such of the rout as he met on the way, and the leaves fell from the trees with the great winds as they went, for the autumn was passing on the dire winter. But the host of the orcs and Glaurung the dragon were there before him, and they came suddenly, ere those that were left on guard were aware of what had befallen in the fields of Tumladad. In, in that day the bridge over Narog proved an evil, 
for it was great and mightily made and could not swiftly be destroyed. And the enemy came readily over the deep river, and Glaurung came in full fire against the doors of Felagund and overthrew it and passed within. And even as Turin came up, the dreadful sack of Nargothrond was well nigh achieved. The orcs had slain or driven off all that had remained in arms, and were even then ransacking the great halls and chambers, plundering and destroying. But those of the women and the maidens that were not burned or slain, they had heralded onto the terrace before the doors, as slaves to be taken into Morgoth's thraldom. Upon this ruin and woe Torin came, and none could withstand him, and would not, though he struck down all before him, and passed over the bridge, and hewed his way towards the captives. And now he stood alone, for the few that followed him had fled. But in that moment Glaurung issued from the gaping doors and lay between, behind, between Torin and the bridge. Then suddenly he spoke, and by evil spirit that was in and by the evil spirit that was in him said, Hail, son of Hurin, well met. Then Torin sprang about and strode against him, and the edges of Gorthang shone with the flame. But Glaurung withheld his blast, and opened wide his serpent eyes and gazed upon Torin. Without fear, Torin looked into them as he raised up the sword, and straightway he fell under a binding spell of the lidless eyes of the dragon, and was halted, moveless. Then, for a long time, he stood as one graven of stone, and they too were alone, silent before the doors of Nargothrond. But Glaurung spoke again, taunting Torin, and he said, Evil have been all thy ways, son of Hurin, thankless, fosterling, outlaw, slayer of thy friend, thief of love, usurper of Nargothrond, captain foolhardy and deserter of thy kin. As thralls thy mother and thy sister live in Dorlomen, in misery and want, thou art arrayed as a prince, but they go in rags, and for thee they yearn, but thou carest not for them. Glad may thy father be to learn that he hath such a son, as learn he shall. And Turin, being under the spell of Glaurung, hearkened to his words, and he saw himself as, a, as in a mirror misshapen by malice, and loathed that which he saw. And while he was yet held by the eyes of the dragon in torment of the mind, and could not stir, the oaks drove away the herded captives as they passed nigh to Turin, and crossed over the bridge. Among them was Findulias, and she cried out to Turin as she went, but not until her cries and the wailing of the captives was lost among the northward road did Glaurung release Turin, and he might not stop his ears against the voice that haunted him after. Then suddenly Glaurung withdrew his glance and waited, and Turin stirred slowly, as one waking from a hideous dream. Then, coming to himself, he sprang upon the dragon with a cry, but Glaurung laughed, saying, If thou wilt be slain, I will slay thee gladly. But small help will thou be to Morwen and Neonor. No heed didst thou give to the cries of the elf-woman. Wilt thou deny also the bond of thy blood? But Torin, drawing back his sword, stabbed at the dragon's eyes, and Glaurung, coiling back swiftly, towered above him and said, Nay, 
at least thou art valiant, beyond all whom I have met. And they lie who says that we are of our part do not honor the valor of foes. See now, I offer thee freedom. Go to thy kin, if thou canst. Get thee gone. And if elf or man be left to make tale of these days, then surely in scorn they will name thee, if thou spurnest this gift. Then Torin, being yet bemused by the eyes of the dragon, as were he tr uh, as were he treating with a foe that he could no pity, believed the words of Glaurung, and turning away, he sped over the bridge. But as he went, Glauron spoke behind him, saying in a fell voice, Haste thee now, son of Hurin, to Dorloman, or perhaps the orcs shall come before thee once again. And if thou tarry for Findulias, then never shalt thou see Morwen again, and never at all shalt thou see Neonor, thy sister, and they will curse thee. But Torin passed away, on the northward road, and Glaurung laughed once more, for he had accomplished the errand of his master. Then he turned to his own pleasure, and set forth his blast, and burned all about him. But all the orcs that were busy in the sack of the routed, sacked he routed forth, and drove them away, and denied them their plunder, even to the last thing of worth. The bridge, then, he broke down, and cast it into the foam of Narog, and being thus secured, he gathered all the hordes and riches of Felagund and heaped them, and lay upon them in the innermost hall, and rested a while. I'm going to stop there for just a hot second because, oh my goodness. <laughs> Remember when I tell you it gets worse? This is the Greek tragedy of Tolkien's, uh, of Tolkien's book gosh we still have seven more pages to go in this chapter i love it and turin hastened along the ways to the north through the lands now desolate between narog and taglin and the fell winter came down upon him for in that year snow fell ere autumn was passed and spring came late and cold ever it seemed to him as he went that he heard the cries of finduilas calling his name by wood and hill, and great was his anguish, but his heart being hot with the lies of Glaurung, and seeing ever in his mind the orcs burning the house of Hurin or putting Morwin or Neonor to death, to torment, he held on his way and turned never aside. At last, worn by haste and the long road, for forty leagues and more had he journeyed without rest, he came with the first ice of winter to the pools of Irvin, there when before he had been healed. But there, but they were now, hang on, but they were now but a frozen mire, and he could drink there no more. Thus he came hardly to the pass of Dorloman, through bitter snows of the north, and found again the land of his childhood. Bare and bleak it was, and Morwen was gone. Her house stood empty, broken and cold, and no living thing dwelt nigh. Therefore Turin departed, and came to the house of Broda, the Easterling, and he had a wife, and he had to wife Erin. Okay, he that had to wife Erin, 
Horin's kinswoman, and there he learned of an old servant that from it to, uh, sorry, I can't read today for some reason. And there he learned of an old servant that Morwin was long gone, for she had fled with Nienor out of Dorlomen. None but Eärin knew where. Then Turin stood to Broda's table, and seizing him, drew his sword, and demanded that he be told whether Morwin had gone. And Eärin declared to him that she went to Doriath to seek her son. For the lands were free from that evil, she said, by the black sword of the south, by the black sword of the south, who has now fallen, they say. Then Torin's eyes were opened, and the last thread of Glaurung's spell were loosed, for anguish and wrath at the lies that had deluded him, and hatred of the oppressor of Morwin, a black rage seized him, and he slew Broda in his hall, and other Easterlings that were his guests. Thereafter he fled into the winter, a hunted man, but he was aided by some that had remained of Hador's people and knew the ways of the wild, and with them he escaped through the falling snow and came to the outlaw's refuge in the southern mountains of Dorloman. Thence Turin passed again from the land of his childhood and returned to Sirion's Vale. His heart was bitter, for to Dorloman he had brought only great woe upon the remnant of his people, and they were glad of his going, and this comfort alone he had, that by the prowess of the black sword the ways of Doriath had been laid open to Morwen. And he said in his thought, Then those deeds wrought not evil to all, and where else might I have bit, uh, better bestowed my kin, even had I come sooner? For if the girdle of Melian be broken, then last hope be ended. Remember, the Girdle of Melian is the, the force field around basically that big forest in the center of Middle-earth right now. Now Turin, coming down from Eredwethrin, sought for Findulias in vain, roaming the woods beneath the mountains, wild and wary as a beast. And he waylaid all the roads that went north to the pass of Sirion. But he was too late, for all the trails had grown cold. For where washed away by the or were washed away by the winter, yet thus it was passing that down the ta southward down the Taglin that Turin came upon some of the men of Brethiel that were surrounded by orcs, and he delivered them for the orcs fled from Gorthang. He named himself Wild Man of the Woods, and they besought him to come and dwell with them, but he said that he had an errand yet unachieved to seek Vindulias, Orodreth's daughter of Nargothrond. Then Dorlas, leader of the woodsmen, told the grievous tidings of her death. For the men of Brethiel had waylaid at the crossing of Taglin the orcos that led the captives of Nargothrond, hoping to rescue them. But the orcs had at once cruelly slain their prisoners, and Findulias they pinned to a tree with a spear. So she died at last, saying, Tell the Mormegil that Vindulias is here. Therefore they had laid her in a mound near the place and named it Hwad-en-Eleth, the mound of the elf-maid. Torim bade them lead him thither, and there he fell down into darkness of a grief that was near death. Then Dorlas, by his black sword, the flame, a fame whereof he had come even to the deeps of Brethiel, and by his quest of the king's daughter, knew that this wild man was indeed 
Mormegil of Nargothrond, whom rumor had said was the son of Hurin of Dorloman. Therefore the woodsmen lifted him up and bore him away to their homes. Now those were set in the stockades upon a high place in the forest. Ephil Brandir upon Amon Abel. You don't have to remember that. For the people of Haleth were now dwindled by war. And Brandir, son of Handir, who ruled them, was a man of gentle mood, and lame also from childhood. And he trusted rather in secrecy than in deeds of war to save them from the power of the north. Therefore he feared the tidings that Dorlas brought, and he and when he beheld the face of Turin as he lay on a bier of cloud of cloud of foreboding excuse me, a cloud of foreboding lay on his heart. Nevertheless, being moved by his woe, he stood him into his own he took him into his own house and tended him, for he had skill in healing. Which is basically a good way of saying that Tolkien is a doctor. Um or, sorry, Tolkien didn't know how to say doctor, just, like, skilled in healing. A lot of these people also know, like, how to fix wounds during wartime. Also, someone just asked on TikTok, we are on the Silmarillion, chapter 21, of Turin Turambar. And with the beginnings of spring, Turin cast, him, cast off his darkness, and grew hale again, and, grew, and he arose, and he thought that he would remain in Brethiel hidden, and put his shadow behind him, forsaking the past. He took therefore a new name, Turambar, which in the High Elven speech signifies Master of Doom. And he besought the woodsmen to forget that he was a stranger among them, or ever bore that any other name. Nonetheless, he would not wholly leave deeds of war, for he could not endure that the orcs should come to the crossing of Teglin, or draw nigh to Howard and Eleth and he made that a place of dread for them, so that they shunned it. But he laid his black sword by, and wielded, rather, the bow and the spear. Now new tidings came to Doriath concerning Nargothrond, for some that had escaped from the defeat and the sack had survived the fell winter of the wild, came at last to Thingol seeking refuge, and the march wardens brought them to the king. And some said that all the enemy had withdrawn northward, and others that Glaurong abode, that Glaurong abode still in the halls of Felagund. And some said that Mormegil was slain, and others that he cast he was cast under a spell by a dragon, and dwelt there yet, as one changed to stone. But all declared that it was known to many in Nargothrond ere the end of the Mormegil was none other than Torin, son of Horin of Dorloman. Then Morwen was distraught, and refusing the counsel of Melian, rode forth alone into the wild to seek her son, or some true tiding of him. Thingol, therefore, sent Mablung after her, and with many hardy marchwards to find her and guard her, and to learn what news they might, but Neonor was bidden to remain behind. That's uh, Morwen's daughter and Torin's sister. Yet the, of the, yet the fearlessness of her house was hers, and in an evil hour, in hope that Morwen would return when she saw that her daughter would go with her into peril, Neonor disguised herself as one of Thingol's people, and went with that ill-fated riding. They came upon Morwen by the banks of Sirion, and Magblong besought her, with, and Mablong besought her to return to Menegroth, but she was fey, and would not be persuaded 
Then also the coming of Neonor was revealed, and despite Morwen's command she would not go back, and Mablung, perforce, brought them to the hidden ferries of the Mirrors of Twilight, and they passed over Sirion. And after three days' journeying they came to the Amon Ereth, the Hill of Spies, that long ago Felagund had caused to be raised with great labor, a league before the doors of Nargothron. There, Mablung set a guard of riders about Morwen and her daughter, and forbade them go further. But he, seeing from the hill no sign of the enemy, went down with his scouts to Nogrod, as stealthily as they could go. But Glaurung was aware of all that they did, and he came forth in heat of wrath, and lay into the river. A vast vapor and foul reek went up, in which Mablung and his company were blinded and lost. Then Glaurung passed east over Narog. Seeing the onset of the dragon, the guards among Amon Ereth sought to lead Morwen and Neonor away, and fly with them at all speed back eastward. But the wind bore the blank mists upon them, and their horses were maddened by the dragon stench, and they were ungovernable, meaning they couldn't be like they couldn't get the horses under control. And they ran this way and that so that some were dashed against trees and were slain, and others were borne far away. Thus the ladies were lost, and of Morwen indeed no sure tiding came ever to Doriath after. But Neonor, being thrown by her steed, yet unhurt, made her way back to Amon Ethir, there to await Mablung, and came thus above the reek into the sunlight. And looking westward, she stared straight into the eyes of Glaurung, whose head lay upon the hilltop. Her will strove with him for a while, but he put forth his power, and having learned who she was, he constrained her to gaze into his eyes, and he laid a spell of utter darkness and forgetfulness upon her, so that she could not remember that had not she, that, excuse me, so that she could remember nothing that had befallen her, nor her own name, nor the name of any other thing. And for many days she could neither hear, nor see, nor be stirred by her will. Then Glaurung left her standing alone upon Amon Ethir, and went back to Nargothrond. Now Mablung, who greatly, daring, had explored the halls of Felagund when Glaurung left them, fled from them at the approach of the dragon, and returned to Amon Ethir. The sun sank and night fell as he climbed the hill, and he found none there save Neonor standing alone under the stars as an image of stone. No word she spoke or heard, but would follow as if she took as he if he took her hand. Therefore in great grief he led her away, though it seemed to him in vain, for they were both like to perish, succorless in the wild. But they found but they were found by three of Mablung's companions, and slowly they journeyed northward, and eastward towards the fences of the land of Doriath beyond Sirion, and guarded bridge and the guarded bridge nigh to the inflow of Asgalduin. There's I just want to briefly pause here and say there are a lot of um different um places in this chapter specifically. You do not have to remember all of them. Even I glaze over them most times. I know where they are, but Please by no means feel like you have to remember this. This is a confusing chapter um, as far as location goes. But Neonor, in that... Oh, hang on. I lost it. But even as they drew near the fences, 
At last she closed her staring eyes and would sleep, and they laid her down and rested, also unheedful, for they were utterly outworn. There they were assailed by an orc band, such as now roamed among often as nigh the fences of Doriath as they dared. But Neonor in that hour, recovering her hearing and sight, and being awakened by the cries of the orcs, she sprang up in terror, and fled ere they could come to her. Then the orcs gave chase, and the elves after, and they overtook the orcs and slew them ere they could harm her. But Neonor escaped, for she fled in a madness of fear. Hang on. I lost my place again. For she fled as in a madness of fear, swifter than a deer, and tore off all her clothing as she ran until she was naked, and she passed out of their sight, running northward. And though they sought her, long they did not find, they found her not, nor any trace of her. At last Mablung in despair returned to Menegroth and told the tidings. Then Thingol and Melian were filled with grief. But Mablung went forth, and sought long in vain for the tidings of Mordwen and Neonor. But Nainor ran into the woods until she was spent, and then fell, and slept, and awoke. And it was a sunlit morning, and she rejoiced in light as it were a new thing, and all things else that she saw seemed new and strange, for she had no names for them. Nothing did she remember save a darkness that lay behind her, and a shadow of fear. Therefore she went warily as a hunted beast, and became famished, for she soon had no food, and knew not how to seek it. But coming at last to the crossing of Taglin, she passed over, seeking the shelter of the great tree of, of Brethiel, for she was afraid, and it seemed to her that the darkness was overtaking her again, from which she had fled. But it was a great storm of thunder that came upon the south, and in terror she cast herself down upon a mound of Howard and Eleth, stopping her ears from the thunder. But the rain smote her and drenched her, and she lay like a wild beast that is dying. There Turimbar found her, as he came to the crossing of Taglin, having heard rumor of orcs that roamed near. And seeing in the flare of lightning the body, as it seemed, of a slain maiden lying in the mound of Findulias, he was stricken to the heart. But the woodsmen lifted her up, and Turimbar cast his cloak about her, and they took her, and they took her to a lodge nearby and warmed her, and gave her food. And as soon as she looked upon Turimbar, she was comforted, for it seemed to her that she had found at last something that she had sought in her darkness, but she would not be parted from him. And when she asked her concerning her name and her kin and her misadventures, then she became troubled as a, as a child that perceived that something is demanded but cannot understand what it may be. And she wept. Therefore Turambar said, Do not be troubled. A tale shall wait. But I will give you a name, and I will call you Ninel, Tear Maiden. And it was that name that she shook her head, but said, Ninel. That was the first word that she spoke after her darkness, and it remained her name among the woodsmen ever after. On the next day they bore her towards Ethel Brandir, but when they came to Dimrost, the rainy stair, there this tumbling stream of Celebrost fell towards Teglin. A great shuddering came about upon her. Wherefore afterwards that place is called Nen-Girith, the shuddering waters. Oh, that might be my neighbor again.
Jill River. Sorry, y'all. Let's continue. Ere she came to the home of the woodsman upon Amon Obed, she was sick with a fever, and long she lay thus, tended by the women of Brethil, and they taught her language as to an infant. But ere the autumn came, but ere the autumn came by the skill of Brandir, she was healed by her sickness and could speak. But nothing did she remember of the time before she was found by Turimbar on the mound of Howit and Ethil, and Brandir loved her, but all her heart was given to Turimbar. In that time the woodsmen were not troubled by the orcs, and Turimbar went not to war, and there and there was peace in Brethil. His heart turned to Nianel, and he asked her in marriage. But for that time she delayed in spite of her love, for Brandir forebode he knew not what, and sought to restrain her, rather that for her sake than his own or the rivalry with Turimbar. And he revealed to her that Turimbar was Turin, son of Hordin, and though she knew not the name, a shadow fell upon her mind. But when three years had passed since the sack of Nargothrond, Turimbar asked Nianel again, and vowed that now he would wed her, or else go back to war in the wild. And Nianel took him with joy, and they were wedded at the midsummer, and the woodsmen of Brethil made a great feast. But ere the end of the year, Glaurung set orcs of his dominion against Brethil, and Turimbar sat at home, deedless, for he had promised to Nianel that he would not go to battle only if their home was assailed, that he would go to battle only if their home was assailed. But the woodsmen were worsted, and Dorlas unbraided him, that he should not aid the people that he and that he had taken for his own. Then Turimbar rose, and brought forth again his black sword, and he gathered a great company of men of Brethil, and he def and they defeated the orcs utterly. But Glaurung heard tidings of the black sword was in Brethil, and he pondered what he heard, devising new evil. In the spring of that year, Nianel conceived, and she became wan and sad. And at the same time, there came Ethel Brandir. The first, there came to Ethel Brandir, the first rumor that Glaurung had issued from Nargothrond. Then, Turambar, said, sent out scouts far afield. For now he ordered things that he would, and he gave, and few gave heed to Brandir, and it drew near to summer. And as it drew near to summer, Glaurung came to the borders of Brethil, and lay near the, wa uh, the west shore of Taglin. Then there was a great fear among the woodsfolk, for it was now plain that the great worm would assail them and ravage their lands, and not pass by returning to Angband, as they had hoped. They sought therefore the counsel of Turimbar, and he counseled them that it was vain to go against Glaurung with all their forces for only by cunning and good fortune could they defeat him. He offered therefore himself to seek the dragon in the borderless, the borders of the lands, and he bade the rest of the people to remain in Ethil Brandir, but to prepare for fight, or, excuse me, prepare for flight. For if Glaurung had the victory, he would come first to the woodsmen's homes and destroy them, and he could not hope to withstand, and they could not hope to withstand him. But if they scattered far and wide, they might escape. For Glaurung would not take up his dwelling in Brethil, and would soon return to Nargothrond. Then Turimbar asked for companions willing to aid him in his peril, and Dorlas stood forth, but no others. 
Therefore Dorlas umbraided the people upbraided the people and spoke scorn of Brandir, who could not play the part of their heir of the house of Haleth. And Brandir shamed him, and Brandir was shamed before his people, and was bitter at heart. But Hunthor, kinsman of Brandir, asked to leave asked his leave to go in his stead. Then Turambar said farewell to Nienel, and she was filled with fear and foreboding, and their parting was sorrowful. But Turambar set out with his two companions, and went to Nen Girith. Then Nienel, being unable to endure her fear and unwilling to wait in the Ethel tidings for Turambar's fortune, set forth after him, and a great company went with her. At this Brandir was filled all at more with dread, and he sought to dissuade her and the people that would go with her from, the, from this rashness, but they heeded him not. Therefore he renounced his lordship and all love for the people that had scorned him, and having naught left but his love for Nienel, he girt himself with a sword and went after her, but being lame, oh, chill, chill, but being lame, he fell far behind. Now Turimbar came to Nen-Gereth at sundown, and there he learned that Glaurung lay on the brink of the high shores of Taglin, and was like to move when night fell. Then he called those tidings good, for the dragon lay at Kabed en Aras, where the river ran in the deep and narrow gorge, that the hunted deer might overleap. And Turimbar thought that he would seek no further, but would attempt to pass over the gorge. Therefore, he purposed to creep down at dusk and descend into the ravine under night and cross over the wild water, and then to climb up the further cliff so and so come to the dragon beneath his guard. This counsel he took, but the heart of Dorlas failed when they came to the races of Taglin in the dark, and he dared not attempt the perilous crossing, and drew back and lurked in the woods, burdened with shame. Turambar and Hunthor Nonetheless, crossed over in safety, for the loud roaring of the water drowned all the sound, and Glaurung slept. But ere the middle night the dragon roused, and with and with a great noise a blast and excuse me, and with a great noise and blast cast his forward part across the chasm, and began to draw his bulk after. Turambar and Hunthor were well nigh overcome with the heat and the stench, as they lay as they sought in haste for a way to come at Glaurung. And Hunthor was slain by a great stone that was dislodged from on high by the passage of the dragon, and smote him in the head and cast him into the river. So he ended of the house of Haleth, not the least valiant. Then Turambar summoned all his will and courage and climbed the cliff alone and came beneath the dragon. Then he drew Gorthang. And with all his might of his arm and of his hate, he thrust it into the soft belly of the worm, even up to the hilt. But when Gorthang felt his, but when Glaurung felt his death pang, he screamed, and in his dreadful throw he heaved up his bulk and hurled himself across the chasm, and there, excuse me, and there, laying. I lost my place. Sorry. But when Glaurung felt the death pang, he screamed, and in his death throes he heaved up his bulk and hurled himself across the chasm, and there lay lashing and coiling in his agony, and he set all in a blaze about him, and beat all to ruin, until at last his fires died, and he lay still. 
Now Gorthang had been wrested from Turimbar's hand in the throes of Glaurung, and it clave in the belly of the dragon. Turimbar, therefore, crossed the water once more, desiring to recover his sword and to look upon his foe. And he found him stretched at the length, and rolled upon one side, and the hilt, excuse me, and the hilt of Gorthang stood in his belly. Then Torimbar seized the hilt, and set his foot upon the belly, and cried in mockery of the dragon, and his words at Nargothrond, Hail, worm of Morgoth, well met again, die now in the darkness have thee. Thus is Torin, son of Horin, avenged. And he wrenched out the sword, but a spout of black blood followed it, and fell on his hands, and the venom burned it. And thereupon Glaurung opened his eyes and looked upon Torimbar with such malice that it smote him as a blow. And by that stroke, and the anguish of the venom, he fell into a dark swoon as one lay dead, and his sword beneath him. The screams of Glaurung rang in the woods, and came to the people that had waited in nen -Gerith. And when those that looked forth heard them, and saw afar the ruin and burning that the dragon made, they deemed that he had triumphed, and was destroying those that assailed him. And Nienel sat and shuddered beside the falling waters. And at the voice of Glaurung, her darkness crept up upon her again, so that she could not stir from that place of her own will. Even so, Brandir found her, for he came to Nengereth at last, limping wearily, and when he heard that the dragon had crossed the river and had beaten down his foe, his heart yearned towards Nienel in pity. Yet also, yet he thought also, Turumbar is dead, but Nienel lives. Now it may be that she will come with me. Hmm. Not a fan. After a while, therefore, he stood by Nienel and said, Come, it is time to go. If you will, I will lead you. And he took her hand and rose silently and followed him, and in the darkness none saw them go. But as they went down the path of the crossing, the moon rose and cast a gray light into the land, and Nienel said, Is this the way? And Brandir answered that he knew no way save to flee as they might from Glaurung and escape into the wilds. But Nienel said, The black sword was my beloved and my husband. To seek him only do I go. What else could you think? And she sped before him, and thus she came towards the crossing of Taglin beneath the Huadaneleth in the white moonlight, and dread came to her. Then with a cry she turned away, casting off her cloak, and fled southward along the river, and her white raiment shone in the moon. Thus Brandir saw her from the hillside, and turned to cross her path. But as she, but he was still behind her when she came to the ruin of Glaurung, nigh the brink of Kabet in Aras. There she saw the dragon laying, but heeded him not, for the man beside him, for a man lay beside him, and she ran to Turumbar and called his name in vain. Then, finding that his hands were burned, she washed it with tears and bound it with strips of raiment, and she kissed him and cried to him again to awake. Thereat Glaurung stirred for the last time ere he died, and he spoke with his last breath, say, saying, Hail, Nienor, daughter of Horin, we meet again ere the end. I give thee joy that thou hast found thy brother at last. 
But now thou shalt know him, a stabber in the dark, treacherous to foes, faithless to friends, and a curse unto his kin, Torin, son of Hurin. But the worst of all his deeds thou shalt feel in thyself. Then Glaurung died, and the veil of his malice was taken from her, and she remembered all the days of her life. Looking down upon Turin, she cried, Farewell, O twice beloved. Ah, Turin, Turimbar, Turim, Abaratanan, Master of doom, by doom mastered. O happy to be dead. Then Brandir, who heard all, standing stricken upon the edge of ruin, hastened towards her, but she ran from him in distraught with horror and anguish, and coming to the brink of Kabet and Aras, cast herself over, and was lost in the wild water. Then Brandir came and looked down and turned away in horror, and though he no longer desired life, he could not seek death in that roaring water. And thereafter no man looked again upon Kabed and Aras, nor could any beast or bird come there, nor could any tree grow, and it was named Kabed Neramarth, the leap of dreadful doom. But Brondir made his way back to Nengerith to bring tidings to the people, and he met Dorlas in the woods and slew him, the first blood that he had ever spilled. And at last he came to Nengerith, and men cried to him, Have you seen her? For Nienel is gone. And he answered, Nienel is gone forever. The dragon is dead, and Turambar is dead. And those tidings are good. The people murmured at these words, saying that he was crazed. But Brandir said, Hear me to the end. Nienel the Beloved is also dead. She cast herself into Taeglin, desiring life no more, for she learned that she was none other than Nienor, daughter of Hurin of Dorloman. Ere her forgetfulness came upon her, and that Turimbar was her brother, Turin, son of Hurin. But even as he ceased, and the people wept, Turin himself came before them, for when the dragon died, he swooned. His swoon left him, and he fell into a deep sleep of weariness. But the cold of the night troubled him, and the hilt of Gorthong drove into his side, uh, drove into his, into his side, and he awoke. Then he saw that one had tended his hands, and wondered much that he was left, none the less, to lie upon the cold ground. And he called. Hearing no answer, he went in search of aid, for he was weary and sick. But when the people saw him, they drew back in fear, thinking that it was his unquiet spirit, and he said, Nay, be glad, for the dragon is dead, and I live. But wherefore have you scorned my counsel, and come into peril? And where is Nienel? For her I shall see, and surely you did not bring her from her house. Then Brandir told him that it was so, and Nienel was dead. But the wife of Dorlas cried out, Nay, Lord, he is crazed. 
for he came here saying that you were dead, and he called it good tidings, but you live. Then Torumbar was wrathful, and believing that all Brandir said or did was done in malice towards himself and Nianel, begrudging their love. And he spoke evilly of Brandir, calling him Clubfoot. Then Brandir reported all that he heard, and named Nianel Nianor, daughter of Horin. And he cried out upon Torumbar at the last words of and he cried out upon Turimbar with the last words of Glaurung, that he was cursed unto his kin and to all that harbored him. Then Turimbar fell into a fury, and in those words he heard the feet of his doom overtaking him, and he charged Brandir with leading Nianel to her death, and publishing with delight the lies of Glaurung, if indeed he devised them not himself. And he cursed Brandir and slew him, and he fled from the people in the woods. But after a while his madness left him, and he came to Howard and Eleth, and there sat and pondered all his deeds. And he cried upon Findulias to bring him counsel, for he knew not whether he would not whether he would do now more ill to go to Doriath to seek his kin, or to forsake them forever and seek death in battle. And even as he sat there, Mablung, with the company of grey elves, came over the crossing of Taeglin, and he knew Torin, and hailed him, and he was glad indeed to find him yet living, for he learned of the coming of the Glau forth of Glaurung that, had, that his path led to Brethiel, and also had heard reports that the black sword of Nargothrond now dwelt there. Therefore he came to give warning to Torin, and help if need be, but Torin said, You come too late. The dragon is dead. Then they marveled, and gave him great praise, but he cared nothing for it, and said, This only I ask. Give me news of my kin, for in Dor Loman I learned that they had gone to the hidden kingdom. Then Mablung was dismayed, but needs must tell to Torin how Morwen was lost, and Neonor cast into a spell of dumb forgetfulness, and how she escaped them upon the border of Doriath and fled northward. Then at last, Turin knew that doom had overtaken him, and that he had slain Brandir unjustly. Sorry, I realized I skipped a line. I am so sorry. The line is, and then he cursed Brandir and slew him, and fled from the people of the woods. I don't remember reading that part, so Brandir is dead. I apologize. Then at last Torin knew that his doom had overtaken him, and that he had slain Brandir unjustly, so that the words of Glaurung were fulfilled in him. And he laughed at once, Fay, crying, This is a bitter jest indeed. But he bade Mablung go, and returned to Doriath with curses upon it. And a curse too upon your errand, he said. This only was wanting. Now comes the night. Then he fled from them, like the wind, and they were amazed, wondering what madness had seized him. And they followed after him, but Turin outran them, and he came to Kared and Amar and Aras, and heard the roaring of the waters, and saw that all the leaves fell sear from the trees, as though winter had come. There he drew forth his sword, that now alone remained to him of his possessions, and said, Hail, Gorthang! No lord or loyalty dost thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee. From no blood wilt thy shirk, 
Wilt thou therefore take Turin Turambar? Wilt thou slay me swiftly? And from the blade rang a cold voice in answer. Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, that so I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and the blood of Brandir, slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. Then Turin set the hilt upon the ground and cast himself upon the point of Gorthang, and the black blade took his life. But Mablung and the elves came and looked on the shape of Glaurung lying dead, and upon the body of Torin, and they grieved. And when men of Brethiel came thither, and they learned the reason of Torin's madness and death, they were aghast. And Mablung said bitterly, I also have been meshed in the doom of the children of Horin, and thus with my tidings have slain one that I loved. Then he lifted up Torin, and found that Gorthang had broken asunder. But elves and men gathered there great store of wood, and they made a mighty burning, and the dragon was consumed to ashes. Torin, they lay in a high mound, where he was fallen and the shards of Gorthang were laid beside him. And when all was done, the elves sang a lament for the children of Horin, and a great gray stone they sat upon the mound, and thereon was craven in, carven in runes in Doriath, Turin, Turimbar, Dagnir, Glaurunga, and beneath them rode also Nienor, Nienel. But she was not there, nor was it ever known whither the cold waters of Taglin had taken her. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I know this was a long episode, but it is one of the heavier chapters. We will have a stream next Sunday at noon if you're interested in joining. Thanks, YouTube. Bye.